Welcome back to the 95th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories about climate, the crisis that is obviously impending, or maybe that's not necessarily the case. Either way, we're going to take a look at some articles that propose different views on it. We're going to have a discussion about what our future looks like. And, of course, we'll end today with The Daily Delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, obviously, there has been lots of information that has gone around about the climate crisis We were given estimates that the world would end or be unsustainable in 12 years, 15 years. Now they're saying it's going to be 2050, or at least the UN put out information saying by 2050, we're probably going to have water shortages and a lot of people are going to have to migrate from their current locations. But my real question that I'm going to get at is, are we able to mitigate the negative effects while also still not completely changing everything about our society. We are a fossil fuel-based society at this point in time. If you look at half the products in your room, they probably have some form of plastic or have been produced with some form of fossil fuel, oil, gas, anything of that nature. So is it actually tenable to move on from these? I want your opinions down in the comment section. Throw them down there, and if I see anything, I will respond and try to engage in the conversation. All right, let's jump to our first article coming from Slate. Climate change is bad. Cherry blossoms are good. Yes, I know, a little bit of a weird title, but you can probably see where they're going with this. And if you can't, well, this first quote's really going to explain everything you need to know about why they're saying this. Quote, the early arrival of the white and pink flowers hastened this year by the unusually warm February was the reason I had asked Jayapal to take a walk around the tidal basin with me. It was peak bloom, an enchanting and fleeting period during which 70% of the cherry tree buds are in full bloom. But the season has also been flickered with a guilty unease. These trees wouldn't be blooming so early without the rising temperatures of a warming climate, end quote. And, of course, this is true. We have seen over the last few years that these cherry blossom trees gifted to us here in the United States have been blooming earlier and earlier and earlier. And, of course, this indicates, oh, well, you know, it's getting a little bit warmer out. We're starting to see the winter months not last as long, not necessarily be as intense. Or at least that's the short-term story. Because if you look at a long-term trend, it has been very slow. And also, I'll tell you now, some of the best or worst winters, depending on where you stand on how snow is, have been during the last 10 years. Now, the biggest one was when I was 8 years old. So, of course, there has been a downward trend, but we can't just extrapolate from three years of data. But the reason that I thought that quote was important is because it also talks about Rep. Jayapal, and she is one of the progressive leaders who has a unique vision, or at least a strong vision, about the future and climate change. 
And the author decided to walk around, have a discussion about what the future of Americans' politics looks like when it comes to climate. And I thought it was a good quote to introduce the topic, explain why they're walking around, and really introduce Jayapal. All right, so let's jump to the fears or the anxiety that the author was kind of speaking about, that uneasy guilt. Quote, a few days earlier, the United Nations Authority on Climate Change had released a sobering report warning of a rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. Without motivational, unprecedented change to nations' economies and energy policies, the report states, we only have about a decade before the average global temperature hits 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, the level to which countries have agreed to try to limit warming, beyond which the effects of climate change will become much harder for humanity to endure. It's enough to make any climate-conscious Earth inhabitants spiral. The decade lost to inaction, the long odds of preserving life on this planet as we know it, it feels depressing every time you see one of those reports because it shows us again how far behind the eight ball we are, Jayapal said, end quote. And this is a very important point, or I should say this is something that really sticks in the mind of people who care about climate change. So we have all as industrialized nations in the West for the most part, or even just nations coming up and starting to industrialize, we have acknowledged that, okay, this 1.5 degrees Celsius, this is the the metric. This is where we have to limit it. Otherwise, things go downhill from there. And of course, scientists have good, or at least lots of models indicating this. But at the end of the day, we're not going to know. We are not going to be able to see the future. So I don't necessarily like this hard limit, this 1.5 degrees Celsius. While I agree we should mitigate, we should ensure that we have a sustainable Earth for us, our children, our grandchildren to live on. That doesn't mean setting a hard goal is necessarily the end in a downward spiral. Because at the end of the day, in 50 years, we may be at 2 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial levels, but also we may have carbon capture technology that allows us to extract carbon from the air and put it into new industrial products. So at the end of the day, we can't set this hard limit pretending that we know what the future holds. And also, when you do this, they're right that it's going to cause people that are climate-conscious Earth inhabitants to spiral. It sends a message of sadness, hopelessness. Once we hit this limit, it's over. And that's not necessarily what they're saying in this UN message directly, but that's what it feels like. They're saying, if we don't get this in check by this time, then it's catastrophic. It will only become harder to endure. Yes, it will become harder to endure, but also human beings are one of the fastest adapting animals on this earth. And when I say adapting, I don't mean that, oh, yes, within two generations, we're going to grow gills. Oh, we're going to be able to swim in that higher water. No, what I mean is we have the ability to manipulate our surroundings. We have the ability to create technology. That's what we've done with solar panels, wind, tidal power. So at the end of the day, we have to always keep in mind that we are an ever-progressing society. And these effects 
can be mitigated with technology. Now, that's also me projecting into the future, but I'm using previous data, in my opinion, to say, hey, we've overcome hurdles in the past. We needed to get across the country faster. We came up with trains. We used steam power to have trains and locomotives. Then we came up with planes, all these different innovations to overcome certain hurdles. So I think that projecting that into the future, that we will innovate, that we will progress, that we will not let this be the end of human society just because we have worse climate, I think that's more honest than saying uh, it's basically irreversible once we get to this 1.5 degrees Celsius point. But let's jump back to Jayapal's conversation. And she does raise a really good point as to why some of these climate efforts aren't being taken 100% seriously or aren't getting all the attention they need in Washington, D.C. Quote, still, weaning the U.S. off of fossil fuels will be harder than many people realize, she said. I think for a lot of people, they think that once we pass legislation, we're done. But federal agencies still have to write rules about how each piece of legislation is implemented and appropriated funds distributed. Lobbyists are swarming all over this process. Last year, Jayapal introduced the Stop Corporate Capture Act, which would reduce corporate influence over the rulemaking process by, among other things, jacking up penalties for companies that lie to regulators and creating an office to advocate for members of the public who stand to benefit from regulations. As a public issue, despite its centrality to the workings of government, corporate capture is arcanine and unsexy as it gets. End quote. And, you know, I'm not going to linger on this one too long, because if you listen to this podcast before, you know my opinions on the amount of influence that lobbyists can have in our politics. And I'm not saying there's not a place for making sure that businesses, corporations, industries at least are able to get their fair share of the senator or House representatives' time to talk about how these issues will affect them. But at the end of the day, if they're directly involved in the rulemaking process that will affect them, you can expect them to come out and push for rules that will aid them. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that is the reality of the situation. So having some restrictions and making sure that they don't overcrowd the process and get on these regulators and these rulemakers and slow them down to basically cowtail to every single whim these industries have, then it can be helpful and it can help things move forward. And at the end of the day, just like the pu public is able to comment on rules and regulations when they're posted before they actually go into action, maybe companies should be able to do the exact same thing and not necessarily be directly involved in the creation of the rules, but rather have comments that they're allowed to make, point out flaws in the logic, so on and so forth. And maybe that's a little bit naive on my part. I can understand that. But I think it's a serious consideration. And there's one last quote from this article that I really think is important. There is hope, basically, is the point of this quote, and I'll read it to you. Quote, like leaders in every progressive movement, Jayapal walks a fine line when discussing the future of climate action. She must accurately convey the urgency of the issue and the consequences of further delay, 
while insisting hope and confidence that major achievements are within reach, end quote. And that is a very important thing. At the end of the day, we cannot, like I said at the beginning, inspire hopelessness. We have to inspire people to hang on to the rope a little bit longer, to say, not only hang on, but to say, I can climb this. I can beat this challenge. I can ring that bell at the top of that rope. And at the end of the day, if I try hard enough, if we work together, we can overcome this rather than letting them fall off the rope and hit the pads and just accept that they can't change anything. That's not the way to go about this. And I think at the end of the day, even if I don't agree with all of the policy positions of people that want to push heavily on climate change, I do like when they spread a message of hope. And there's another message of hope, too, that comes from a different article that I was reading from the American Institute for Common Research. And the title's a little bit weird, Greta Thunberg's War Against Wind Farms. And I'll give you the background, but I think it's important going into this one that you understand this is a free market version of how to deal with climate change, and it does inspire a little bit of hope because at the end of the day, if we can align the incentives of private industry to also be environmentally friendly, not by forcing them through ESG or anything of this nature, but by ensuring that when they do something, it is actually advantageous for them to take into effect these environmental factors, then that is a possible solution moving forward. So everybody in the system benefits, they make a little bit of money, and they're also worrying about environmental issues. All right, so let's get to the background of this article. Quote, Greta Thunberg is back in the news. This time she's presenting the protesting the installation of the wind farms in Norway. Earlier this month, several activists chained themselves to the doorway of Norway's energy ministry. Some pr- protesters, including Thunberg, were away and deta- taken away and detained by the police so that the government officials could reopen. The protests claimed that the 151 wind turbine farm erected two years ago by the state-owned Norwegian state company Statcraft severely disrupts land used for reindeer herding by the country's indigenous population, the Samis. So this is what the article is going to address from this point on. How do we go about putting up projects in areas that may be less advantageous for certain people that may hurt indigenous populations. And then it will have an undergirding message that I'll highlight a little bit more as we go through. And let's be clear, I'm not from Norway. This issue does not strike at the heart of me, but I think it is a good illustration of the thought process of both the government of Greta Thunberg and a private market solution on environmental issues. So we have opposing views, and this is a bit of a long quote, so stick with me. Quote, when property rights are well-defined and enforced, parties can solve environmental problems in resilient ways. Elizabeth Sauer, Norway's state secretary, implicitly acknowledged as much when she said, the first thing we must do is investigate whether there are solutions that make it possible for reindeer herding and the wind turbines to operate side by side. Representatives from the Sami tribe are pushing to decommission the wind farm, jeopardizing Norway's efforts to reach full carbon neutrality by 2030. Quote, 
we want the wind turbines taken down and the land to be returned to the indigenous communities there, Thunberg defiantly said to reporters. Free market environmentalism, in contrast, stresses the role that private property plays in internalizing the costs borne by unconsenting parties. Why tear down the windmills when you can provide electricity to 100,000 homes when the turbines can remain in operation and solve the problem of scaring off the reindeer, end quote. So, if you think about it this way, it's saying internalize the costs borne. That may be a little bit weird for people, and for anybody who's taken a basic economics class, think of the fact that these wind turbines have negative externalities. And if you don't know what that is, think about it this way. They have negative side effects. So these wind turbines are obviously affecting where these indigenous people, the Samis, are able to take and herd their reindeer. And they weren't necessarily accounted for when deciding where to put these wind farms. So there's a negative side effect to these turbines. So to internalize the cost, that means that, hey, we have to acknowledge that we're having a negative side effect beyond just where these turbines are, and we need to put up mitigation factors, or we need to maybe create a new pathway for these people to herd their reindeer. And this is basically internalizing the cost is acknowledging you are having a negative side effect. You're understanding that it has a financial penalty on other people outside the system. And you're going to take that and make sure that you account for it when pricing your good or maybe creating mitigation factors so it doesn't harm that outside person, or in this case, the Sami tribe, as much. You know, sometimes this comes in the form of taxes from the government where they tax pollution in order to ensure that it's really curbing companies from creating more pollution than they need to. But in this case, it's a little bit more tricky. And the reason I think it was important that they really mentioned property rights here is because at the end of the day, if the Sami have the rights to those properties then the wind turbine companies should be paying the Sammies for being on that property. And if the wind farm people own that property, then it's understood that the Sammies should be paying for the right to herd their animals through that area. So that's why they really honed in on the property right issue, because it really does determine who's paying whom. But at the end of the day, both sides should be willing to give up something or get something in either situation in order to make it economically feasible for both. So what would be the private industry solution? Because right now this is a state-owned wind farm. What would be the private industry solution if this was privately owned? Quote, to internalize additional costs borne by the SAMI, statecraft could install sound barriers or invest in other technologies to muffle the noise so that the reindeer are not displaced. Amon Vick, State Secretary of Norwegian Ministry of Petroleum and Energy, outlined their possible solutions, including offering new grazing areas for the reindeer husbandry and directly compensating the Sami for the added co costs imposed by the windmill windmills. So let's pause for a second. So 
he mentioned exactly what I just said, which is he they are directly compensating the Sammy for any inconvenience they have. Because in the eyes of this company, they are on the indigenous people's land. So in order to be there, they're basically going to have to pay rent for any inconveniences they're causing to the Sami people. And that is how this should work. Or at least in a purely free market, that's how this should work. So let's get back into the quote. If Frostvind was privately owned, just so we're clear, that's the name of the project. If it were privately owned, moreover, there would be an even greater incentive to care for the land. The reindeer would offer a profit opportunity to the alert entrepreneur whose reputation in bottom line relies on a flourishing reindeer population. Media scrutiny would serve as an added constraint on opportunistic behavior, as customers of wind energy would choose alternative energy companies who provide reliable power while also respecting indigenous rights, end quote. So what they're trying to get at here is, as a private company, you are much more the subject or you are much more hurt by negative media co- coverage than a state-owned entity. Because at the end of the day, what, are the people going to boycott the state-owned energy producer? That is very, very unlikely. They may not even have a choice in some cases. But if it was a private industry, then people could use their dollars to talk. They could say, no, I don't want you to hurt these indigenous people. What are you doing? Why are you hurting these reindeer? It's unacceptable. I'm going to go with gas company B instead of you. So that is one advantage of it being a private industry and having to internalize the costs to bring in all the costs of its negative side effects on the outside world in order to ensure that they are not getting negative publicity, they're actually aiding everybody that would be involved in the process, that they are making sure these indigenous people's lives are not too disrupted. And that's what's really, really important here. And I do like one more quote. I'm sorry, I've been reading a lot today, but I feel like there's a lot more substance in these quotes than I could ever explain. Because at the end of the day, I am just some random guy who comments. These experts, Jayapal, the people at the American Institute of Economic Research, they put in a lot of time, and these articles really do speak to me about the climate issue. And I'm trying to give you both sides. But there was kind of a mic drop moment here from the American Institute for uh, Economics. Quote, with renewable power likely to become the leading source of electricity within the next few years, embracing free market solutions will ensure that everyone benefits from clean energy. The Manchurian view, clutched by climate activists like Thunberg, undercut the very goals they wish to achieve by neglecting the power of human ingenuity. After all, the ultimate resource is the human mind, not government fiat, end quote. And that's what I was speaking about earlier. The fact that we are incentivized by money, the fact that we are constantly pushed to survive, to make our lives a little bit easier. That's why we innovate. And at the end of the day, we as a species have this beautiful thing. We have our mind. And if you put a economic incentive there for people to become more green, to have more green technology in their companies, then there's a little part of your mind that's like, yes, I want a little bit more money 
And, and if I can also save the future world for my kids, then that's a nice little win-win opportunity. Because sometimes the thought of worrying about the future and saving the world, quote-unquote, or bettering the world isn't always at the forefront. So if you add a little bit of an economic incentive as well, then it's a nice little win-win scenario, and you're going to get the people that aren't necessarily worried about the climate to care a little bit more. All right, so we're going to go a little off track. We're coming back to the U.S. here, and this one is talking about a new bill being proposed that will supposedly lower energy costs here in the United States. And the reason it's part of our environmental conversation today is because at the end of the day, this will have an effect on what kind of energy projects we produce or are willing to allow here in the U.S. going forward. This one comes from the New Republic. Why the Republicans' Lower Energy Cost Act won't lower energy costs. So let's just jump right in. Quote, what the GOP has titled the Lower Energy Cost Act is in fact a giveaway to companies profiting the most off higher energy prices that the bill claims to be combating. GOP messaging around this bill, which is expected to come to a vote in the House on Thursday, emphasizes that government interference is what's keeping energy prices high. For the last two years, President Biden and his extremist friends in Washington have waged a war on American energy and hardworking families across the country by paying the price, who are paying the price. Louisiana Congressman Steve Scalise, the bill's lead sponsor, wrote in a statement about the bill, end quote. And of course, this is the kind of language you expect from the left and the right. The left is outwardly saying, no, this bill will not do exactly what it says. And if that's true, it's, it's very ironic because it seems that both parties have a knack for naming bills that won't do exactly what they're supposed to do. The Inflation Reduction Act, I'm sorry. I'm not saying that it's a bad bill, even though I don't agree with a lot of the things in it. But it is not going to reduce inflation if you are spending trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars. And I'm not saying that was the actual budget. What I am saying is at the end of the day, by the time they actually get all of this implemented, every single rule, regulation goes through the process. Every bureaucrat is paid for being involved. And all the subsidies are given out to all the different companies for reshoring and creating new plants and everything of this nature. It will be in the trillions upon trillions of dollars. And also, the Lower Energy Cost Act, if this article is correct, if these, the New Republic is correct, then the Republicans are terrible at naming things too. And it's not actually going to lower costs, or at least that's what they're going to argue. And I'll point out a few places where I think they're right in a place or two where I think they are wrong. So let's go to the heart of the bill. Reducing regulation. Quote, presumably in a bid to throw lots of things at the wall and see what sticks, congressional Republicans have also argued that H.R. 1 is essential for combating the climate crisis, a thing they are allegedly now concerned about after decades of denial and obstructionism. So first, pause. That is a needless dig, but at the end of the day, they're allowed to their opinion. Quote, the centerpiece of the dubious argument is part of the GOP's energy platform known as permitting reform, which they claim will make it easier to bring new energy installments online. Conservative Climate Caucus Chair 
John Curtis and Marionette Miller Meeks co-authored a recent Washington Examiner examiner op-ed that presented H.R. 1 as the must-have for environmentalists casting existing regulations as a core barrier to reducing emissions, end quote. So, on its face, that's that can't necessarily, that feels wrong. Well, regulations are stopping people from emitting more. That's the whole point of regulations. It's meant to keep these companies in lockstep and make sure that certain emission goals are met and ensure that they're held liable, that those negative side effects, those negative externalities are accounted for by the companies when they're emitting these pollutants. So I don't necessarily agree with the Republicans. Then again, I didn't read their entire article, but on its face value, that's what it feels like. But I also think that at the end of the day, the New Republic is wrong to just outwardly dismiss permitting reform because at the end of the day, when it comes down to allowing companies to enter the market, we want it to be easier. We want more competition when opening new natural gas plants, new mining facilities, new drilling locations, because in that sense, it will lower the price for consumers. If there's more competition, if there are more choices, and not everybody has to rely on a fewer number of companies, then at the end of the day, the price will be driven down. There are only a few cases where that is not ultimately true, and that's in places that have natural monopolies like electricity, water, sanitation, things of this nature. But when it comes to speculation for oil, the more people, the more companies that are out there doing it, it also means that people are going to have to produce higher wages in order to entice people that work on these oil rigs or these drilling locations. Because if they don't like the working conditions at Exxon and Mobil's place, then they can go to Shell's company and do it there. So they're actually going to have higher wages because there's going to be more demand for these kind of workers. And they don't necessarily have to stay with one company who has a monopoly or at least has all the drilling rights in one location. So we can see how this idea of making permitting a little bit easier could very well be economically beneficial. Now, can we also acknowledge that in doing that, we're going to have larger numbers of natural gas, oil on the market, and that's not necessarily a good thing for reducing emissions? Of course, that is also something we can consider. But at the end of the day, I just wanted to highlight the New Republic, they are trying to come at it from their point of view, of course. They have an opinion. And to me, it feels like they're getting blind by the fact that this is a Republican piece of legislation rather than taking the time to acknowledge, hey, this part, or at least from what they understand, this part, great. This part, bad. They need to be able to call it out. And let's be clear, I am not, I'm not saying I am an absolute expert. I know everything. This is from my rudimentary understanding. And if you have a correction, if you say to me, hey, Alex, now you are totally wrong, Throw it down in the comment section. I want to know. I want to hear other people's perspectives. But this is just from my rudimentary understanding of what's being proposed and how they have been pushing, the Republicans have been pushing for permit reform for a while now. And I've heard these arguments over and over and over from their side of the aisle. And I think there's some important things that we can take away from them, and they're not necessarily a bad thing on their face. 
All right, so let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from the Animal Rescue site. Warning, soft content. (laughs) Sorry, that's what they say here. Uh, Public display of cuddles between a cat and a bunny. So I don't know about you, but a good long hug always has a special impact on me. And apparently I am not the only one. But in Biden, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your Twitter handle, is a highly recommended Twitter page if you love random animal videos. Quote, the page has also tweeted an immensely cute interaction between a cat and a bunny. In just 20 seconds, the two best friends are able to win the hearts of many people. End quote. And, you know, these guys love their hugs so much they just they really just wanted to keep doing it. Quote, affection will radiate from your screen as you watch the bunny and rabbit cuddle together. It looks like the two adorable creatures have always been cuddle buddies. End quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos or read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Podvine, Google Podcast as well as the Twitter handle at your daily flip where I post the link to the YouTube video on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So you don't have to go searching for it. You can go straight to Twitter and it will pop up in your feed. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.